in the world of freedom. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Ich bin ein Berliner. This is Radio Goethe Magazine with Arndt Peltner. News and information from the heart of Europe. Hello and welcome to Radio Goethe Magazine. I'm Arndt Peltner. In today's show I have an interview about an uncommon friendship. So stay tuned. But first, the news. Radio Goethe Magazine. The news with Nina Paula. Köln. A German court allows students to grade their teachers online. The website is called spickmich.de and contains teacher rankings. A woman who was insulted by her low ranking defeated a legal challenge. The state superior court in the city of Cologne said the teacher rankings on this site were protected by constitutional freedom of expression rights as long as the comments were not defamatory. Many teachers are vehemently opposed to the site, saying no teacher should be graded without consent. One of the founders of the website said, instead of calling for a ban, teachers should make more use of the internet and realize that technological developments can't be reserved. It's a chance, not a threat. Köln. A pair of twin German artists, Gerd and Uwe Tobias, have opened an exhibit at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. The show comprises drawings of typewriters and enormous brightly colored woodcuts. But while they may be the hottest new German art export, they aren't the only ones. Six years ago, Düsseldorf photographer Andreas Gurski was given a show in the famed museum, and a year later it was painter Gerhard Richter's turn. Right now, German art is very popular in other countries, especially in the US, and that is perhaps because it's known for its quality. Kassel An extensive collection of Holocaust is finally unlocked to the public in Bad Arolsen. It will now be possible to carry out detailed research on the transport of prisoners, the camp populations and the health of forced laborers, the Swiss director of the International Tracing Service said. The opening had to wait until the 11 nations that own the archives altered their treaty with the International Committee of the Red Cross, which manages the documents. The Bad Arolsen facility began as a British Red Cross card index in 1943 and was used to reunite families beginning in 1946. It now has details on an estimated 17.5 million civilians killed or forced to leave their homes by the Nazis. Berlin. Illegal drug use among Germans dropped last year, according to an annual report issued by the country's anti-drug commissioner. Just 2.7% of Germans admitted to taking illegal drugs, at least once a month last year, down from 3.9% four years ago. The annual report says that the drug use overall is declining, even the abuse of amphetamines, LSD, ecstasy and cocaine. While illegal drug use is dropping, alcohol has become the new drug of choice for teenagers. 50% of 16- and 17-year-olds consumed five or more alcoholic beverages in one day, at least once a month, up from 40% in 2005. Bayreuth Gudrun Wagner, the wife and closest advisor of Bayreuth Opera Festival director Wolfgang Wagner, has died suddenly at the age of 63. 
the sudden death could now have a major impact on the succession. Wolfgang Wagner, the grandson of composer Richard Wagner, had long insisted that Gudrun, his second wife and partner in directing and staging the festival, was the only person capable of taking over. Fritz Tubach and Bernhard Rossner live in the San Francisco Bay Area. Both men grew up during the Third Reich. Fritz in northern Bavaria and Bernhard in a little village in Hungary. One was a member of the Hitler Youth, the other a Jew who was sent to the death camps of Auschwitz and Mauthausen. Both survived, but what they had experienced as children never left them. In the 80s, Fritz Tubach and Bernhard Rosner met over here and became friends. At one point, they decided to write a book, An Uncommon Friendship. I talked to Fritz Tubach about this project. Mr. Tubach, why did you and Bernhard Rosner decide to write a book about your friendship? Well, you know, we didn't just start writing the book uh, just like that. We simply got together and through our wives we met and, uh, and I realized that he was an Auschwitz survivor. And I, of course, was raised in Nazi Germany and my father was in the German general staff in Guernsey and it belonged to the party since 1933. So we had a big difference in our backgrounds. And I um, have done a lot of work in the academic context, being a professor at Berkeley, writing about uh, Nazism, I wrote a cultural text for, for, general, for the general public about the rise of fascism from 1933 and to the fall of 1945. But there, for the first time, I had a person in front of me who actually is a survivor. And to me, suddenly, this idea of working on the issue of the Holocaust, that's the center of my interest there, on a one-to-one -one basis with a, uh, via the anecdotes, the life experiences of one person seemed closer to me and more important than the broad notions of the academic world about how to explain you know, the rise of fascism. So in a way, it was a, uh, getting away from my academic work and doing something more, well, you might call it existential, more personal. That was uh, my first interest. The other one was... Um, that he himself had never told his story to anybody. He'd given fragments and here and there. And, and we met, and um, he realized I was very open in my approach to, to for, on a personal level. So anyway, he confided in me long, and he confided in me to go ahead and actually um, let me record his story, which he had never told anybody. Now, this is a bit unusual. That's why we call it uncommon friendship from opposite sides of the Holocaust. People say, as some well-known historians say, it is nobody's business who didn't survive these camps to write about them, as if he had been there, or even to record and narrate the story of survivors. It's almost a taboo, that's the phrase they use. Well, we did it. We more or less, we broke the taboo that I wrote the story of a survivor. And not only that, it was a story uh, written by a former German. So that made it all the more interesting, dramatic, in a sense, that he had let me do it. He did it because he wanted to get rid of, or had, let's say, finally come to grips with that part of his life that he repressed. And I, for my part, still had to work out something that I guess somewhere I would relate to guilt feelings as an older German, although it was only four and a half when it was over, or at least to a sense of responsibility that I should still make some contribution to the German, uh, you know, and German-Jewish cooperation. 
That's sort of my first idea about it. What is the goal with this book? Are you trying to explain history from a different perspective or are you focusing more on the message that we are all just humans that can get along quite easily? What's behind the story of Fritz Tubach and Bernhard Rosner? Okay, um, I think the way you posed the question, I was primarily interested in an alternative, alternative way of writing about history. I did not simply want to go back to let's say I'm simply the ghost writer and record Auschwitz stories. That's already been done anyway, and probably done better than what I could have done. You know, I'm thinking of the project that was is done by, uh, you know, in this film, what is his name, over in... Uh, nah. There's a big Holocaust narrative project on the way, okay? Spielberg. Spielberg's work, right? The Shoah project. The Shoah project, exactly. Uh, you know, I could have done that simply you recorded and handed on. What was important to me, or intriguing, it was part of the creative interest I had in trying to find the narrative to articulate his story. I could do it up to a point, except when it gets to the central experience of the camps themselves, and somehow find a common ground or a contrastive pattern to my story. So, you know, uh, it was a moral enterprise. You know, I really felt I owed it to him and I owed it to myself to communicate with each other about this problem. But what was just as important is to, me, to me was the writing of it, the aesthetics of it, the mere ability to, to shape a collage of such different backgrounds. You know, often I got the question, well, how could you face each other sometimes? You know, you, uh, Hitler youth, and this friend of yours, uh, Auschwitz survivor, wasn't there some existential crisis, sort of eyeball-to-eyeball -eyeball confrontations? No, never. They never it wasn't there, because he was very much of a professional himself, being a lawyer. He wanted to articulate it, tell me. And I, of course, was very much interested in this as a writer, in put it into language. The trouble is, you know, much of what has been done to the story, we've had 90 appearances now all over the country. People basically take the storyline, just the basic, what happened to you, what happened to you, fine. And the fact that it's an interesting book that we try to, I try to, we both try to make a statement through language and through a beautifully way of putting it was important to us too, quite beyond the moral issue involved. What I meant with this question is also that, that a lot of people in this country, especially in this country, yeah. like hear from about World War II, about the Third Reich, more in like in a historical way, like, okay, we had Hitler over there, we had Goebbels over there, we had Goering over there. But to put it in a, in a different perspective, that there were humans growing up there and have like different personal experiences, was this kind of like your, your approach also to the story, that you give like some totally different kind of faces, some very normal faces, To the, to the idea behind the Third Reich. Very good. That's exactly right. I mean, Bernie also strongly believes, he doesn't believe in collective guilt, as far as he's concerned, being having Jewish survivor of Auschwitz. He believes the individual stories matter. And it's the same for me. That actually is probably the, the ideological position behind this, is to fall out of the simple brush strokes of painting Germans this way or that way. As a matter of fact, out of this project grows my present project I'm working on right now. Because as we, you know, travel around the country and uh, from Florida basically to, to Northern California and all over the place, various venues, 
I realized most people don't know anything about Germans, or what they know are a bunch of cliches. You know, you say something like, you know, the Germans did not like to go into World War II at all. What do you mean? They were ready to fight after all their fighting. I realized from the reaction of people to my story was sort of twofold. On the one hand, they didn't know about the German story, German stories. On the other hand, what they did know is a bunch of cliches. They either, you know, like Hogan's heroes, a little dumb, or they're evil, one of the two. And some books that have been written by Germans, like Hege's book uh, on um, stones in the river, that were big bestsellers here, they simply start with the basic prejudice that exists about Germans. And then they build a narrative around it that's immediately convincing to people. But the way people really lived at the time wasn't that way. I'll give you an example. I could go on for a long time uh, with this. One of the key phrases Hitler used was, we are ein Volk, ein Reich, ein Führer. We are one people, one empire, one leader. This was drummed into us all the time. It was on TV, not, not TV, and, and in news, news reels, in newspapers, particularly on the radio, which was the main medium at that time. Yet, you know, um, the people lived their individual lives just the same and had were taken in up to a point, but each one really was caught in his own particular circumstance. I could go on with that. You can elaborate that more if you want. The, the point is that what I'm doing now with this new book called German Voices, A Generation and Their World in, Nazi, in Hitler's Germany, is um, have collected archival materials from German archives in Munich, and I've interviewed about 60 older Germans that lived during the time. And what emerges is a very different image that what Hitler created for the Germans to believe and the rest of the world. It doesn't mean they weren't for it up to a point, but that they were the fanatics they out, made out to be. They were not. Um, and then I also try to just, in a very simple way, try to portray experiences and stories that showed from the other side. Let me give you one example. He, there's a German soldier. He wrote it in his diary. He was stationed in one of the bunkers in the Normandy coast on the 6th of June, 1944. He, he survived. He wrote it, but somehow his diary got out, and he said, describes that early morning, 3 o'clock, he was, had the watch. He looked through his slot, and he said, my God, what is coming out of the fog, out of the, the dusk? The whole armada is coming right here where I am. Please, God, let them go somewhere else. Just that fear of the armada arriving at the coast. Then, of course, he had to get his machine gun going and start killing people as they climbed up the rock. But his emotions uh, are striking when he suddenly saw the slow emerging of a whole fleet out of the night towards him. You know, that just that little incident, simple as it is, um, you know, tells you something. Well, there was not an other side that disputes the American side. doesn't dispute the, the story of the Texas Ranger who was the first one to get up to the top, but it also makes it valid this fellow's experience. I think that's important. 
You were born in San Francisco, grew up in Germany and went back right after the war to the U.S. You were a child during the Nazi regime. In your book, I have this impression that you feel a certain kind of guilt about what happened to your friend. Why is that? You know, when I did the book, I didn't think I had any guilt feelings anymore. I've, you know, I did the standard line. It's guilt is not the question, it's responsibility and all that. And... Um, You know, uh, but one day, about three years ago, I got a picture of somebody called Tubach, my family background, from Kansas. And there on this picture were the Tubachs that immigrated to the United States in the 19th century, all of them, you know, great-grandfather, black beard, no works, three generations. And when I looked at that generation of, of my family who had immigrated during Kaiser Wilhelm's time, I felt envious. And I said, why would I feel envious of these people? And I realized they were not touched in any way by the crimes of fascism, while my family was. And then at that moment I realized I had a family sense of guilt. Not, you know, personal, but to what extent my family was implicated, particularly my father. It's actually a guilt feeling I assumed from my father. Who had none? You just didn't. It sort of I took it over, in a sense, if you know what I mean. Do you still feel the same today? No, I don't. You know, we've gone through this uh, this book together, and there's so many details, and you know, and after 90 appearances, and the interactions we have, and and you know, the, our different personalities, and see, I don't think he's once iota more more than I am. Not one more, because he lived as an Auschwitz and I didn't. That is quite clear to me. It became clear, you know, and that's not putting him down at all, but, uh, you know, uh, I would define our ethics in terms of what he did in his life and I did in my life. And then we can talk about that. And being a professor at Berkeley, being left at that time, I consider myself, of course, morally slightly better, which is a joke, please don't. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's not the way I really feel deep down. I used to, though, in the 60s. You're all were morally superior. But at any rate, uh, so um, it's whatever guilt feelings I had, they had to do with my family, specifically with my father, who never fessed up to it. An Uncoupled Friendship is also a very personal book behind the obvious different childhood experience of both of you. Why did you decide to include those parts of your lives after you came over to the United States? Very good question, by the way. Well, that's why I do this, this job. You know how to ask questions that are good. Um, I would say, I'd add another question that belongs to it, too. Why did I include uh, experiences before Auschwitz, too? You know, many of the Auschwitz stories of survivors, even the good ones, like Eli Wiesel, for instance, and others, they, as somebody said, they start with the wagons, the train wagons, wagon, I don't know what you call it in English, were the cattle cars, okay? And I just felt that was a mistake because the real life started, we, he, and I had lives before that he did. And so to show what happened to them, I didn't want Hitler to be the, the fellow who defines when something begins and ends. For Hitler, it began when he took them and tried to kill them. But for them and for me, the, the, the value of their lives 
and how they lived before was very, very important to include this. And then you could see much more clearly the tragedy that happens when these people who lived their life in the village suddenly weren't cattle cars. I think it was better, dramatic, to start with that rather than having them herded in cattle cars started with that. Now, as far as afterwards is concerned, uh, it had to do with the same thing, really, because he was a survivor, and he's very proud of it. And we both came to this country, you know, with, well, he came with great hopes, and I also came with great hopes, but I was a little more uh, afraid. I came from a village, and he came from a concentration camp. I was quite protected in some way in, in my family background at home, while he obviously was not. So, and then he was picked up, or rather sponsored by Charles Merrill Jr., you know, one of the richest men in America. While I was sponsored by a general delivery man of the post office in San Francisco. So we had a social difference there too. But it was simply the opportunity to start a new life. I was 18 years old in Germany after the war. I didn't see any hopes of anything. I didn't, uh, to me, after the war, Germany still felt a totally lost place. And while I didn't know what to do here, I want to come west, just move. And so essentially it was that immigrant, let's go to California. You know, California was an exciting place. Even in, you know, one of the first songs after the war was, uh, well, it didn't involve California, but Arizona. Let's, uh, you know, it's a love affair, a story, love song. You and I, let's go to Arizona and raise beans, you know, and, and live a new life. So it was that, I don't know whether you know that song. I can sing it later on when you shut this up. <laughs> you know it? No. Yeah. But that's sort of, you know, uh, the idea that it's a new world out there, the Golden Gate, you know, and uh, there was a bit of this mythology that never left me, even Nazi Germany. Because I was born here and I was always, I fit myself to be special. So why not? You are the generation of my parents. I was born in 1968 and grew up with their story of refugee and bombing nights. Mm -hmm. uh, what can, should, and have people learned, in your opinion, from those experiences your generation went through? Just put it a little bit in historical perspective. Originally, these stories, when they first came out in the 50s, let's say, or in the early 60s, they had a certain kind of political taint to them because the immigrant, uh, the refugee groups founded these parties, BHA, these uh, essentially right-wing parties, some with revisionist tendencies. We suffered in the East, we lost Silesia, maybe we ought to get it back. Now, this is exaggerated, but there was this right-wing context. And, of course, the suffering of the German population in the cities really also was slighted, I think, by the, 60, by the 60s generation, who really felt German... Uh, German uh, suffering shouldn't really be f foregrounded, lest it be considered a way of trying to, you know, balance the scales between German suffering and Jewish suffering. That certainly played a role. And so it was repressed, essentially, a lot of it. Maybe not in some families like your own, where you indeed have this particular background. Your mother or your father from Silesia had to flee. They went through terrible things. And your mother, Dortmund, they went through terrible things too. But in general, the German population was not really allowed to, the older generation, to really deal with that so fully that the public would be aware of it and make something of it as part of their notion, their own collective memories. This has changed now with, I think, some 
books like Günter Grass's book on, uh, you know, the crab walk and the words in English. Uh, but it's not until recently that finally the public, the German public, begins to accept this part of German history, this part of German suffering, as a legitimate part of their collective memories. And I think it has to be discussed. It has to become part for the Germans to become whole. So otherwise, just to have these public, these public um, commemorations of Auschwitz become uh, unbelievable after two, three, four, ten, twenty, thirty years, if the German suffering is not made part of it. So that's so to me. Uh, I see it in a bit in historical terms. As after the war was difficult, but now, my God, the time is more than ripe to to include that in the German experience in the German memories. Let me make one quick historical analogy. The worst war that ever was fought in Europe was the Thirty Years' War, from 1618 to 48. The German population at that point was reduced by two-thirds, from 18 million to 6 million. If you ask any candidate, discuss the effect of this war on German literature, on the consciousness, awareness of Germany, uh, German self-awareness, their own collective memory, there's nothing. The Germans just ignored it. I don't, that's maybe not a historical pattern, but to me it reminded me that after the war it was simply deep-sixed. Is that a good verb in English? It was just ignored. Now it isn't anymore, and I think it's good. I think one of the most important or interesting parts in your book was for me when you described your first journey with Bernhard Rosner to Germany. Can you describe a little bit how he saw and how he felt to be in Germany at this time? That's amazing. I mean, this is where he is much more souverain, much freer than I am. You know, we, uh, but I used to berate him, he always goes to Austria. I said, look, the Austrians are unreconstructed, even to this present day. You know, and they said, why should I deprive myself of their good food? No problem. And when we first entered Germany the first time, we came from Linz, and as we approached Nuremberg, he discussed uh, American politics. He wasn't repressing anything. Well, I was just struck. We are now approaching the city of, you know, the, the party rallies and the Nuremberg trials and all that. Nothing, none of that. He really had overcome all of that. A very specific anecdote illustrates it. We were in Berlin... I asked a policeman, we were lost uh, somewhere, and there was a policeman with two sh German shepherds. So he asked, well, we're asking for the way. And so yeah, we'll, we'll get Stahinzo, which is a direction to Alexanderplatz or something. He told us, and I said to Bernie, by the way, didn't that bother you, a German police officer in uniform with two German shepherds? He said, why? He's there for my protection, he gave me advice where to go. Rational mind. I don't know whether I would have done it. I could have. So, in a sense, he, he had less promise than I did with that. And uh, he had more promise with uh, really accepting that he's Jewish, that, that he discussed in the book, too. And, it, and it's odd that a German, myself, a former German, was the one who facilitated his linking up with a past where my family were implicated in helping him getting into this trouble, this mess, or rather into this danger. So, you know, an uncommon friendship, uh, you know, and uh, just sort of a, 
to go on just one step further in one or two sentences. Now, of course, you know, we're getting older and we play tennis together a lot. We have our own private lives. And, uh, you know, basically this is done. And he's very interested in the new book I'm writing. And I said, Bernie, I'll let you read it when I finish the first draft. But the Holocaust is not central anymore in that. But the German experience. That was today's Radio Goethe magazine. Please find us online at radiogoethe.org. I'm Arndt Peltner.